and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Today, I'm honored to welcome Martha McCallum. Martha, of course, is one of the nation's leading political journalists. She is the host of The Story with Martha McCallum, as well as a terrific podcast called The Untold Story. She also added author to her list of accomplishments earlier this year with the publication of a terrific book called Unknown Valor. We're going to talk to Martha about lessons she learned in writing that book and in understanding that story, which is both a family story as well as a story about World War II, and how those lessons apply to the challenges that so many people are facing today, including our kids. Martha also happens to be the mother of three. We're going to talk about all of that and so much more. Martha, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, and I, I wish we could be meeting in person, as you usually do, but this is becoming the next best thing for all of us, right? It is. It really is. Well, I'm so grateful. I know you've got a ton on your plate. Um, and there's so many things that we will talk about and that we could talk about. But I'd like to start with how you got here. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time on your terrific podcast talking about those untold stories. I'd like for you to share with us maybe your untold story. If you were sitting on the other side of your podcast microphone, what would be the questions that you might ask yourself? How did you get here? How did I get here? You know, um, the first thing that comes to mind is just that how fortunate I feel to be doing what I'm doing and have covered all these presidential elections. This is my fifth one, which obviously dates me, but I've been doing this a long time. Um, and, you know, I often think I have you know three kids who are roughly college age, one is out. And I think a lot about how much pressure is on them to know what they want to do with their lives. And I, I truly fall into that category of not knowing the answer to that question when I was in college. Sometimes people will say, oh, did you always want to be a reporter and an anchor? And the answer is no, I, I didn't. I was always very interested in politics. It was my focus and my major in college. I loved writing and journalism. I also really loved theater. So I was very involved in theater um, in those years in my 20s as well. So I think, although I didn't anticipate that those two things, those two loves would come together, and if someone had told me that, you know, anchoring at Fox would be um, the way that it would all kind of come together in the end, I would never have thought that was a possibility when I was in my early 20s, um, yeah. loving theater and, and writing. But I think somehow they did all come together. And I think that people need to sort of trust if you follow what you love doing um, the things that you want to dive into and spend your time on the most are the things that you tend to I think be the most successful at so I've always loved stories and I've always loved writing I'm a nonfiction person I read a ton of nonfiction and um, I think that biographies and life stories are kind of so rich that um, I'm right now I'm reading this great the, the splendid and the vile it's a a biography of Winston Churchill during the, the Battle of the Blitz. And it's it's so insightful and beautifully written by Eric Larson. And um, for a while, I wouldn't buy it because it was like the, the book that was right ahead of me on the bestseller list. So I didn't <laughs> want to help him out. <laughs> but I finally broke down because I was just dying to read it. And um, and it's really good. But but 
you know, basically I came at this a very circuitous way. I did not, you know, as a kid say, oh, I'm going to be an anchor on a national cable news program, but, but it's evolved and unfolded very sort of organically for me following one thing after the other of, of what I love to do. Now you, if I'm not mistaken, you started as a business journalist working yes. for the Wall Street Journal, but in television on the, on the, I did. Side, right? Yeah. I actually How started at, yeah, I started at a print magazine called Corporate Finance Magazine, which was basically a trade publication, just sort of putting my writing skills to work at the absolute, you know, bottom entry level. I checked facts for other reporters' stories and, um, you know, eventually they let me write little pieces here and there on my own, which I ended up falling in love with doing. I never came at it from a business perspective. I was much more from a journalism writing perspective. So I had to learn finance and business along the way. But I ended up, you know, going to the Wall Street Journal report. And uh, I was a, a line producer in the control room. I was a segment producer in the field. I rolled the teleprompter in the control room. I typed the lower chirons on the, on the screen for the weekend news program that was anchored by Consuela Mack. So I was very much behind the scenes. But I think, and this is what I always tell people who are interested in this business, you have to love it. You know, you have to love the nitty gritty of it. You've got to love just sitting in the room while the the stories are being discussed and debated over in terms of what is valuable enough to go in the show and just be wanting to soak it up. It's not about saying, oh, you know, I, I think I could be an anchor, you know, like somebody sits in front of a camera and reads things because that's not what the job is. So um, I, I think you have to come at it from a very nuts and bolts love of journalism and storytelling and then if you you know if you check all those boxes and you still think maybe you should get in front of the camera then um that's when that bridge gets crossed yeah where did you did you have a big break moment is there something that you can point yeah to i mean i yeah when i was i was a producer for the wall street journal report so i was helping to prepare segments for other reporters who were on camera and Chris Graves, who was the um, executive producer of the Wall Street Journal report said, you know, there's a, a company in Japan that wants us to produce, you know, business minutes for them, just a short little thing that they would send from the United States to sort of be part of their, their book broadcast in Tokyo. And he said, would you like to, you know, give it a shot? I have some other people that are also going to give it a shot. So I, you know, basically auditioned to, to just front these little business minutes and, um, and I got it. So that, and I remember I was so nervous. My jaw, I was smiling. My jaw was literally like shaking <laughs> while I was talking because I was so terrified. And um, I don't know really how I got it, but I did. And and that's when I realized that, you know, it's a little bit more tricky in front of the camera than it might look. <laughs> Cause I thought, you know, being behind the scenes all the time, I was like, oh, it's so easy what they do. Um, but over time and with a lot of practice and a lot of experience, you start to loosen up and hopefully talk like a regular human being when you're in front of the camera. And I think that's what, you know, that's what cuts through and resonates with people. One of the things that I like the most when people are, when people kindly come up to me when I'm out and about or in the field is they just say, you know, I trust you. I feel like I know you. So that to me is the highest compliment that anybody could give me. We're in such an interesting period of time at this particular moment with this pandemic because folks like you, just like everybody else, are having to do what they do without all the bells and whistles that they normally have to yeah. rely on. So your makeup people, your, your camera people, your lighting people, it's such an interesting 
sort of lens into a more realistic and authentic yeah. view of you know you, you all as people, which is really amazing. I think you are very approachable. You're all you're naturally very authentic. Not everyone who does what you do is quite so authentic. But what do you think? What impact do you think this pandemic will have had maybe on the industry? Do you think that? Um, maybe viewers connect more to people that are in front of the camera. Yeah. I don't know. Or different. So, you know what? I, I have I have maybe a slightly different take on this than than some folks do because, and I in full disclosure, I have a small group that has stuck with me in my basement. So um, I have I have a a guy producer who's at the camera. I have my assistant, and I have hair and makeup. So, because we all figured we'd been in each other's faces, we'd been on the road, you know, covering the election cycle and a book tour for weeks and weeks when all this started. And we kind of figured that we had been in each other's faces all the time anyway, and that we were gonna kind of stick in it for the long haul. So far, everyone is fine. So I, I hope that that was the right choice. But um, I felt that it was important for us to look, to maintain as much of the professionalism and the look of our set as we possibly could. Although I think there's there's plenty of place for, you know, a more casual approach and it depends on, you know, guests coming from different places and all that. But I just felt that it would be reassuring to people to have us be as to have us look as close to and when I say look I mean like, you know, having a newsroom set behind us and you know, actually putting on um, a, a jacket or, or a dress or whatever right. um, for the for the broadcast as possible. Because I think when things are so unsettled and everything feels so abnormal, that I just felt that it would be reassuring to just keep it as as close as we possibly could to the look and feel of the show. Now we're not trying to fool anybody. I mentioned many times that I'm in my basement on the show. But, um, but at the same time, I just think, and I've had people say to me, you know, it's just very reassuring to turn you on at seven and to have you there like you always have been uh, in my living room at that time. So that was the choice that we made early on that we kind of wanted to make it as professional as possible. While, you know, obviously things, things are different. One thing that I hope is that we do all get back to the studio and that we do go back to having everyone on set with us because although this has been an interesting experiment, I think there's nothing that replaces, you know, that that person to person connection. And I really want that back. I hope we don't all keep broadcasting out of our closets forever because we're already distant enough with cell phones and social media. Um, we need to maintain as much as possible those human interactions in life. So I'm gonna fight to get back to that. To that place. Yeah, well, you all did something very interesting and I thought pretty creative in the town hall that you held mm -hmm. recently with the president, or a socially yeah. distanced town hall where yeah. you and Brett Baer co-anchored co along with the president this conversation. How did you feel about that as a sort of quasi-alternative to being in the studio? Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously being at the Lincoln Memorial was just a, a stunning experience it's just one of the most special and sort of hallowed places in washington dc and it there's a lot of importance attached to that um there's you know been some criticism even of having it held there the white house was um wanted to do it there and of course you know we we thought that that would be a, a special place to to have this conversation as well um that being said you know virtual is 
fine. It allowed us to get voices from all across the country. You know, when we did our town hall in Scranton, we had a local crowd from Scranton, which was great because Pennsylvania is a very important state in the election cycle, of course. However, the plus to the virtual was that we got a lot of voices from a lot of different places around America. However, there's just nothing that replaces that feeling of being in a town hall with a candidate or with the president and having you know, all the people around who are excited and who are anxious to ask their question and to have the president be able to follow up and say, yes, but you know, how about this? And have a little real exchange with, with people. There's just, there's nothing that replaces that. So again, um, I'm glad we were able to do something that connected people to the president and got them to ask their questions. But um, again, I hope we can get back to those those crowded rooms at some point. Yeah, let's pivot and talk a little bit about your terrific podcast, The Untold Story. Um, talk a little bit about how that came together and why that particular focus. Where did you get the idea for that? Well, you know, I'm, I came up with the name, the story for our show because I was thinking of a good title and I thought, you know, what do we all discuss all day long in our meetings, in our back and forth with our producers? Uh, and it's the story. It's all about the story. People would say to each other, you know, oh, did you see this story? Have you read this story? And I thought that's, that's always been what it's about for me is kind of digging deeper into some of the human experiences and stories that are told. So it seemed like a great way to give some added content, things that we can't fit into the show, and really sit down with some people and have a longer conversation with them on the untold story. And as you know, I mean, the podcast is like, it's like old fashioned radio. It's a new thing, but it also gives you that great ability to kind of take your voice down a few octaves and have a real chat. And you learn a lot about people. So it's been a wonderful, um, wonderful opportunity for the show and, and for some of the folks that we've had on too, I hope. Yeah. What are some of the lessons that you've learned coming out of that? You talk to, to folks that have these incredible, inspiring stories, stories of perseverance and grit. What have you, what, what have you learned? What do you take away from, from those conversations? Well, you know, I think that everybody is human and that some of the most successful people in, that you run into are some of the most humble. Uh, I think of Woody Williams comes to mind, Medal of Honor winner in World War II, who also ended up um, being someone that I wrote about in the book. You know, his story is so incredible. He says, you know, I'm country, country. I'm from West Virginia. And he grew up in a, a very large family, all of whom were you know, birthed by a midwife who lived in their village. And to go from that and to be too short to be allowed to enlist in the first round and then uh, to be sent ultimately to Iwo Jima and to become this incredible war hero. He's the, the only living Medal of Honor winner from Iwo Jima. Um, and there were many Medal of Honor winners at Iwo Jima. So, you know, to, to, to sort of bring someone like that um, into an environment where some people who don't know his story to get exposed to it is, is one of the great things that I love about that. Another totally different example is a podcast that I did with Donna Rotuno, who was the, the attorney who represented Harvey Weinstein, mm -hmm. um, very accomplished woman attorney from Chicago, and obviously in a role that no one would expect to see a woman in uh, representing him. But I was so impressed with her approach to the law and her belief that everyone, no matter how you know vile some people might think that person is, um, deserves in our system of justice to have 
representation. And it's, it's a principle that she takes very seriously. So I, I think just giving her some more time to explain where she comes from and what her approach to the case was, was also you know, a, a very memorable untold story. So you are, you've added author to your list of incredible mm -hmm. accomplishments with your great book, Unknown Valor. Talk about, so this story is very personal to you. It's part family story. It's a World War II story. Talk about when you first learned about this and how you knew this was what you wanted to write about. So I first learned about Harry Gray, who was my mother's first cousin, when I was probably a young teenager. And my mom shared his letters with me. And when I read them, I just, I, they just made me cry. They were so beautiful. And they always made her cry because she loved him. He was like a brother to her. And he had lost his father very young. So my grandfather, who I was very close to, felt like Harry's you know, surrogate dad. And he played that role in a big way for him. So it was a story that I always knew growing up. Of course, I never met Harry Gray. Uh, I only knew him through his letters. But he wrote so beautifully. He was only 18 years old. And the letters that he wrote were so eloquent and so, so caring and generous to the people at home who loved him and were worried about him. So when I decided um, to write a book, I was sort of looking at a few different options of what I might write about. But um, I sat down with the, the editor at HarperCollins and, and we started talking about the story. He said, you know, that, that's your book. I mean, that's the book you have to write. That's obviously the story that is burning in you that you want to tell. And then originally I saw it as just sort of a compilation of his letters and some of the stories of, you know, what happened in, on Iwo Jima. But then I became just, I thought, well, I have to start at the beginning. You know, this has to go back to Pearl Harbor. It has to go back to why we ended up in the Pacific in the first place. I have to explain how these men all ended up on this tiny island in the middle of nowhere and go back on all their lives, you know, back home and in their hometowns and back to the beginning of Pearl Harbor. So then it just became a much larger undertaking than I ever imagined. Um, and I felt sometimes out of my depth, you know, sort of getting into it. But, but it was an incredible, I, I always said, if I'm gonna spend the time to write a book, I want it to be something that turns out to be a real learning experience for me, <laughs> you know, because I'm going to read all these books and spend all this time. I want to feel at the end of it as if I've learned a lot. And boy, did I. I ended up going to Iwo Jima myself, and I ended up um, discovering, I had all these military records, and I wanted to find someone who knew more about what happened to him and what happened on the island. And it was just, I never imagined that I would meet two men who were with him when he was killed. Um, I had an extraordinary researcher helping me, Ron Drez, and also Dean Laubach, who was very good with the uh, military records. And so I got to sit down with two men who were with him and who knew him and who still got teary-eyed when they looked back on that day and remembered it 75 years later. So I think it, it was an extraordinary experience for me, and I'm just so gratified by the feedback the book has gotten, mostly from World War II veterans. I have a stack of letters behind me who say, thank you for writing this story. Thank you for taking me back there, you know, with your words and for hopefully, you know, giving honor and reverence to the, to these men who were just so incredibly brave and so selfless, yeah. so incredibly selfless in a way that, um, you know, I mean, we sit in the military still for sure, but as a country, I think it's a, an, an emotion that we kind of need to get back in touch with. Maybe that's a silver lining, I hope, at the end of all this. Maybe we become a little bit more humble and a little bit more selfless. Yeah. So you're the mom of three. 
what do you hope your kids, because you've got kids that are, that are older teens, as I understand it, you've got a daughter and two sons, you've got yeah. in college who plays football and you're a big Notre Dame fan, mm -hmm. but, but what lessons do you hope they, you're able to impart to them because they are, you know, relatively the same age that these, yes. these now men who were young boys at the time. We all talk about how can we, how can we teach our children about grit and perseverance? How, how do you think these, how are you applying these lessons that you learn to your own kids? Hmm. Well, you know, it's hard. Um, they, you know, reading the book, I think, was a big eye-opener for them. My youngest son is named Harry, after Harry Gray. And um, so I hope it's, you know, something that will kind of live with him forever, the memory of the person that he was named after. Um, I also have been sharing the letters that I am now getting from people with them, because these letters, again, are so remarkable from these men who sort of, and their heroism is incredible. I mean, Harry Gray was, you know, just a young private who unfortunately got hit um, with a mortar shell. Um, but some of the extraordinary heroism stories that these men send me, and again, they're just so humble and they say, thank you so much for this book. And they, they don't think that what they did is any more brave than what, you know, anyone else did who was killed there. Um, so I, I like to continue the dialogue with them through these letters because I think it just sort of continues to send that message to them. Um, and then, you know, they're living through something right now. They've been, all of these kids in school have made a sacrifice to come home, to give up a part of their life that is so special. And now, you know, they're looking ahead to the fall with all these questions. So this for their generation is going to leave a mark on them. And I hope it doesn't make them any, I mean, obviously we all have to be cautious, but I hope it gives them strength to be always hopeful and to not, um, not become reclusive as a result of it. That's my biggest fear. But um, you know they're they're going to have their own mark of of in history for the United States of of what this moment was like for them. So a bit of a baptism by fire uh, at the moment as well. It certainly is. Certainly is. Any practices that you all have engaged in as a family that you maybe are doing things differently that you mm -hmm. maintain coming out of this once we are on the backside yeah. of the pandemic. Well, you know, the best news is that we all really like each other, you know? Um, it's <laughs> nice to know friends. that you really enjoy being together. I mean, that's not to say there haven't been moments of, you know, friction or frustration. I don't think any family is human if they don't have those and um, admit those. But overall, I'm, I'm grateful for the time that we've had at home together. And we've, we've played a lot of Scrabble and we've watched a lot of... Um, a lot of good, you know, TV shows and movies. We we finished off five seasons of Peaky Blinders together, which is one of my favorite things that we watched. Um, so you know, we it's nice to know that you just enjoy each other's company. And I and I think that it's interesting because my one son went back. He lives off campus, so he went back to finish up his finals off campus. But you know, I find that he's like reaching out and calling a bit more. So I think that shows me that he. Um, you know, he liked being home and he liked the constant contact that we all had. So I think that's something that we hope um, will stay with us. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Mm -hmm. Martha, it's been such a pleasure really. having you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. To learn more about Martha McCallum, please check out the show notes for this episode. 
There, I will include links to Martha's bio, as well as to her terrific book, Unknown Valor. And remember, if you are enjoying She Said, She Said, I would love to hear from you. Please, please send me a note. Let me know what topics are resonating with you, what's really helping you, and what you'd like to hear more about. I hope you know it is incredibly gratifying to me to be on this journey with you, and I am so grateful that you're willing to share your time with us. It means so much. I hope that these conversations are helping to make your day a little brighter and your journey just a little bit easier. As always, thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.